This is Mark Lieberman, the host of the radio show, The World According to Mark, broadcasting through WPVM LP in Asheville, North Carolina on 103.7 and streaming on WPVMFM.org. So my guest today um, is someone who I, I, I hesitate to say I've known him for a long time. I knew him a long while back and had some very pleasant experiences with him and he'll share um, the time he remembers. But primarily um, I knew him because he was a funny guy, a nice guy, a charming guy. And I knew that he was probably going to go far in his chosen career, which is uh, comedy. Um, it's physical comedy clowning, serious, more serious stuff, musical stuff, a bunch of stuff. Um, and he told me before we got on air that one of the things that he almost did, which thank God he didn't, was become a lawyer because mm -hmm. the last thing that we need in this country right now is another lawyer, but we certainly need a lot of entertaining fellows. So I wanna welcome Kenny Raskin on my show today. Kenny, thank you for agreeing to be here with us. Absolutely, happy to be here. Uh, I'd like to cross-examine you now, if you don't mind. Oh, please, go ahead. <laughs> please, yes or no answers. See, I, I could have been a lawyer. <laughs> you, could, you could do it. You know, I, I actually, I could see how those two things do go together better. Yeah. But again, uh, so I, I introduced the, 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 the tell that, you're, that you had thought about going to law school. And part of that was because your father was a lawyer. Um, right. And you uh, you were born in Savannah, and then I met you in Atlanta, and you spent a lot, a lot of time in Atlanta. But uh, tell us uh, the story about how you decided to shirk shirk the law, not evade the law, shirk yeah. the law, and and become an actor. Well, my father was a a, a lawyer, like we like we said before, and uh, he was a. Uh, well known for being able to settle out of court he had he had that kind of disposition he didn't really like to go to court but he was good and he was also a real estate developer and i admired him a lot and i just assumed that's what i was going to do until i graduated from college and took a year off and wandered into a theater in atlanta and got bit by the theater bug and that's and but for the next i would say for the next 6 or 7 years even while I was pursuing this acting and waiting tables at night and things like that, I was still struggling with the notion of doing this as a career, getting subtle messages probably from my dad. Uh, but at any rate, I just kept doing it and I started building a, a career for myself. I started creating material and getting some notice for it. Uh, I worked in 1976 for a, a place at a place in Atlanta called the World of Sid and Marty Croft, which was a indoor amusement park. And I like to say that I worked there for six months or another way I like to say is I worked there from its inception to its demise. It really closed within six months, but I got into mime and, and juggling and clowning. And uh, the next thing I knew I was, I was really pursuing this. Uh, 
So the subtle know. messages that you got from your dad, well, presumably like, were you know, like, you give it a while, but eventually you actually have to start making money and move well, out, of the, out of the basement. <laughs> it was less than that. It was more like, you know, you, you got to become a responsible member of the community. I mean, he had these euphemisms for, you know, you, you, this is not probably not the way you're going to, gonna you're probably not going to support, you know, whatever, support yourself. It's an interesting thing that happened is I, I, I don't know, maybe he, I just pushed myself into this place and it worked out, but I ended up doing my one man clown show in a 500 seat theater in Savannah for one night. And it was a huge hit and I got paid. I, I, I got paid a portion of the door. I remember that I've got paid mostly in cash and some checks because back then in the early eighties, people weren't using credit cards that much. And so I went to my father's office when uh, a couple of days later with all this cash. And I said, dad, I, I got like $1,200 here and I really don't want to travel back to Atlanta with it. Could I give it to you and you write me a check? And I really think that I saw a light bulb go off over his head. You know, I just, <laughs> I feel like that's, that's kind of the moment for both he and I, where I think he said, you know, he's serious about this and he's figuring out how to monetize it. He's, he wants to do this. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm serious about this. And I think I figured out how to, how to monetize this. Well, so, let me ask you something on that, yeah. as you mentioned it. Um, 500 seat theater solo performance, possibly not your own you know, first performance, but, yeah. but early on in the process. Were you, were you petrified? Do you get, did you get stage fright then? And then you can tell us whether you still get stage fright. <laughs> My job is to not let you see how, how, uh, how much I'm perspiring. I, I always, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I recognize the gravity of the situation that I'm stepping into. I take a deep breath and I, and I, and I pay attention to what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I think I've always been pretty good at that. That's not to say that I don't get some some anticipation, but I've never I've never let it overwhelm me. You use it you use it uh, yeah. in a good in a positive way, which is right. which is what all good actors and comedians and performers do. So um, I'd like you to sort of take us a bit through, but let me just uh, your your career. I, uh, from my readings and our discussion, mm -hmm. you've been at this, and we'll define what this <laughs> means, the shtick, so to speak, for uh, over 35 years. Um, and Longer you, now. Longer now, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. A long, a long time. Yeah. And longish. And, and longish. And within that longish time, you have done many things and you, and I'll just mention names and then you can fill us in. I mean, you you were a clown, I guess, with Ringling. Um, you taught uh, clown stuff there. Uh, people obviously know what Cirque du Soleil is and you had some interesting experience there. You've been in film. You were originated a role on Broadway, uh, which you can tell us about. Um, you've done a ton of stuff and, and you've been, you've been in parades. We, we saw you in a parade in Atlanta <laughs> and you were, but you were also on the national mall, uh, doing a celebration of, of folk art, I believe. Yeah. Circus. Yeah. American circus. And, and in addition to, uh, 
being able to do all those various performances of you know the stuff I'm talking about. I mean, you 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 ring bells. You can talk about that. <laughs> and yeah, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very proficient bell ringer. You're a bell ringer, yeah. and you have been. Um, You've been in, invited and embraced enthusiastically by both the academic and the corporate world. So you, so, so you have a, a lot of stuff. So t take us a little through your hmm. your career. Well, I guess I'm a you know I'm a I'm a dilettante in lots of ways. I, I carved out something for myself, which, and I never, I didn't have a long range plan. I literally lived from day to day, taking you know drifting wherever the wind blew me i mean i i suppose i i steered it somewhat but i was not thinking five ten years ahead of time at all uh after i left the world of sid marty croft and i continued to be an actor in in uh, atlanta i went to a clown workshop in the woods of maine called it was called clown camp and it was run by a couple of guys. Uh, one guy was an acrobat, one guy was a, a clown. And I met a lot of great people who I still, you know, 40 years later, I'm still great friends with them and know them. And uh, I, it was at that, it was at that um, workshop that I, I started creating this piece with a hat and a coat and a crutch. Uh, like a, a guy down on his luck on a park bench with a hat and a coat and a crutch. And I hang the coat on the crutch and the hat on the, coat and my arm slips through and it becomes another person and it you know it it, it grew into a, a really nice routine and people really liked it I started getting offers to do it on television and at festivals and stuff and that really um I started to build a name for myself within that 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 milieu which was basically called new vaudeville back then new vaudeville and um you know, I, so I did that, and I, I also taught clowning in Atlanta. I was involved with the Pup Center for the Arts and Puppetry, Puppetry Center for the Arts, uh, the Academy Theater. I did a lot of that. I did commercials. I did some films. I was just, you know, trying to put put a nickel in front of another nickel, you know, and and I and I was pretty successful at it. Another thing I did, which was really a lot of fun and really interesting, is I became one of the producing directors of the Atlanta Arts Festival for the the performing arts division of the Atlanta Arts Festival in Piedmont Park. And so I got to book a whole lot of really neat acts. I brought a, this incredible acapella group from New Jersey. I brought uh, an offshoot of Palabolas. I, I, every year we did a big vaudeville show, which I directed and was in. So I would bring people in for that. Uh, the guy that was, that was the main uh, producing director, he had seen Cirque du Soleil uh, somewhere, I guess, in New York or in Canada, when he was raving about them and said, you would love them, you should see them. So I think I watched a little bit. I saw some video of them because I'd heard of them. And then I got real ballsy and I, because I, I heard they were coming to Atlanta. They wanted to be, I called the office and I spoke to somebody. And I said, I know Atlanta really well and I know the performing arts world really well. I could help you find a spot to perform, to put your tent. So when he, this guy came and we drove around Atlanta and I showed him places and I, you know, I talked about the fact that I was a clown and everything. He said, well, you ought to send a tape. And I said, well, I'm not a circus clown. I mean, you know, I'm a theater clown really come from the theater. He said, well, you should send one anyway. So I sent this video to them 
And then about two, three months later, I got a call from the, you know, from the talent department saying, you know, would you be, we'd be really interested in you finishing the national tour. And I went, oh, wow, okay. Because they were going to go to Washington and then Atlanta. I was going to finish it in Atlanta. And then about, um, uh, so I was planning to do this. And uh, about three weeks later, they called and said, well, actually, we're going to use somebody who we've used before um, to finish the tour. But we'll stay in touch. <laughs> but you can come see the show. So I got tickets to the show and saw it and talked to the artistic director afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. And then about eight months later, I, they he called again and they said, you know, we're going to be in Las Vegas. Steve Wynn has hired us to play at the Mirage for the year while we're building Treasure Island, the hotel where we're going to put in a permanent show. And we'd like you to be the clown. And I said, okay, but I only want to do it for six months. And they kept calling back and it was very interesting. They kept calling back, this guy, Gilles Saint-Croix, kept calling me from various places in the world and giving, offering me more money. And finally, he called me from Mongolia. I remember he called me from Mongolia. They had, phone, they had phones in Mongolia. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he called me and he, he offered me just this, you know, a hell of a lot of money to do a year. And I turned to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and she said, are you nuts? Would you go do this? You're crazy not to do this. So I agreed. And I went, so off I went to Las Vegas mm -hmm. uh, for uh, a year. And I was the clown in Cirque du Soleil. Uh, I was the guy... They called him every man and he was um he was the guy that gets kidnapped from the audience and thrown into the circus and i was so i was the storyline basically and i that's you mentioned the bells i i played a i did a bell routine with an audience participation in that um uh so that was that was a lot of fun and i got to meet a lot of interesting people i met michael jackson and Jerry Lewis came backstage. It was, you know, it was really quite, quite a, quite a year, you know, working so, with this world-renowned circus. And you rubbed elbows with a lot of people, and obviously, yeah, I remember that... once turning around, and I, I had this moment in the show where I, I look at the audience, kind of shrug my shoulders at somebody in the front row, and who did I, whose eyes did I look into? But Lily Tomlin. <laughs> and so it, was, it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun. Well, I mean. I, it's hard to, for me to describe you uh, without saying the word renaissance, so I won't say renaissance, but you certainly are a multi-talented individual. You made reference to one of your early acts, the one where you basically use a crutch and your jacket and a hat, put your arm around it in a certain way, and all of a sudden you're two people. And I saw that routine um, back a long back time ago. And when then I was a I, youngster doing that, yes. When you were a youngster, exactly. And then I saw uh, you were kind enough to send a video of you doing it more recently. Yeah. And it's still, it's a, it's sort of a simple thing, but it's spellbinding. And and we talked earlier about uh, two of your um, iconic heroes, who are also people that I, um, you know, treasure uh, that 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 you have some commonality with uh, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And so yeah. when you do that routine mm -hmm. and you're able to become two people at the same time mm -hmm. and, and make your crutch and your hat and your, and, and your coat uh, another person, I think of 
I at least think of Charlie Chaplin with the with the forks. Uh, I don't know when we had them in, but he did the little. Yeah, that's that movie, The Gold Rush. Gold Rush and dancing the dancing buns. Yeah. Right. So the dance. So you were your own dance <laughs> dancing bun. Yeah. But but um, so how did Keaton and and Chaplin influence you, and how did you come up with that idea to begin with? You put well, your jacket came, on wrong. <laughs> no, I came, I came to the workshop with a coat and a crutch and a hat. But what I was doing is I had it on the crutch and I was just dancing with it, like it was a, a just dancing. Okay. I didn't have my arm through or anything. And then my big blow off of the act was that I balanced the crutch on my chin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a routine. So one of the things we did at this clown workshop is we we would break into groups of three or four. We would we would show the other three or four that we were with what we were working on. And and a lot of times we'd say, why don't you play with it for a minute? And and um, and let me look at what you you know. And it just so happened that this woman who's still a great friend of mine, she sat down and her, just her arm went through and I went, that's it. That that's the look. That's it. And so I began to develop. And it was a 13 minute routine. I came out as a blind man begging for money. And then once I got money, you know, I, I took the glasses off. I wasn't blind, you know, uh, you know, I, I, so I had this long story, but then when I started to get offers to do it on TV, they said five minutes, that's all five minutes. And so I get, get rid of the blind man part. <laughs> I, got, I cut it down to five minutes, you know, and I, I used to, and I spoke a cigarette. Listen, let me just plug and say, if you want anybody out there listening, if you want to watch it, Kenny Raskin, my old friend, YouTube, or you can go to my website, www.kennyraskin.com videos, and you can see it there. Okay. But so- uh, I, I, Mark, I'm about to give you a big thrill. I mean, um, I'm a, you can see me. I'm about to put on one of Buster Keaton's hats. This was gifted to me. Wow. This pork pie hat. Oh my God. Was gifted to me to, by a man who was friends with uh, his widow. And so this was a hat that Eleanor Keaton made for Buster. His fa- you know, he had many pork pie hats and this was one of them. It, it looks pretty good, but you're, he looks so much younger than he did. I <laughs> but I think he, he had a face where he looked like he probably was old from birth. <laughs> yeah, I just adore him. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's nobody more brilliant in, in uh, situational comedy uh, than him. You know, he just, there's nobody, there was nobody like him. Well, let me reintroduce Kenny Raskin. And Kenny is my guest today, who's a, um, an actor, a performer, a clown, physical comedy, uh, has done a ton of stuff. And um, just so grateful to have you on the show, Kenny. I'm happy and, to be here. Talking about these, these escapades that you've been on. And, um, you know, I, I think it's one of the things that's refreshing about your humor to me is uh, you don't do, I haven't seen all your, all of your, your routines, obviously, but you don't do, you know, dirty work. You don't use foul language. You know, you possibly use suggestive language, but so much of, of what we tend to see sometimes where it devolves is that those are things that people feel like they have to do in order to get a laugh. But the, the things that you do are universal and kids and old people alike. Uh, you know, thrill to, to see that that happen. 
That's uh, true. And I, I tell you the truth, I, I I could do a school show in the morning and, and do that same show in the evening for adults. Uh, my awareness, I have an awareness that I'm in front of adults in the evening and kids, but a lot of the material is the same. Now, the only thing is I probably wouldn't like the cigarette in front of kids, you know, but I, but, but you make certain adjustments, but basically you're right. The humor tends to be universal. So why don't we just focus a little bit more on a couple of, again, what I think are some of the extraordinary things. You mentioned Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. My, I've seen a couple of uh, Cirque du, du, du Soleil performances, and I, it, they're memorable a lot for the acrobatic stunts. Yeah. And, and we talked uh, before we did this, uh, this interview, uh, to what extent were you involved in doing some rope climbing? And you had, and you had a very nice story to tell about yeah. that. So why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you tell us again? Well, the only, the only injury I got from being in Cirque du Soleil was shin splints for running <laughs> up and down ramps. So I did have shin splints, but that, no, I was not an acrobat, but there was a giant bird cage uh, on stage up in the, you know, up high on the stage, uh, maybe about, I don't know, 15 feet high in, in the air. And uh, at some point, the director wanted me to be up there to watch the, uh, the big trapeze act. So, but I had to get up there within about two seconds and I, I'm not an acrobat. So it would have, I could have climbed it. I knew how to climb, but it would take me about 10, 12 seconds to get up there. So instead, uh, he had two of the big strong acrobats pick me up and throw me up in the air, uh, throw me as high as they could along the rope, and I then I would grab the rope and with like two pulls, I'm in the I'm in the the bird cage. So at, at, you know every night that's how I that's how I got up there with these guys throwing me practically throwing me up into the bird cage. Of course, still when I, came down, I, I slid down. I was going to say, still perilous, nonetheless. In fact, yes. in, in some ways, it's more frightening to know that you allowed yourself to be thrown up, and then you obviously had to grab the rope. And right. you know, hopefully, you hadn't just eaten uh, some French fries and a hot dog. No, <laughs> so no, your hands, hands were not slick. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Mark. Speaking of hot dogs and and stuff like that, um, I. Uh, I used to uh, bite into a, no, what was it? Uh, oh, banana, it was a banana. So uh, every night they would film the show. They, they were doing a documentary, you know, uh, film of it. I mean, shooting of it. So we could watch it and see what we were doing and all that. And there was a TV in the back, in, the, in this tent behind the tent where everybody would gather and sit when they weren't on so they could watch the show. And the people in Cirque du Soleil were, they were, they were tricksters. They really were. So the uh, one of the guys decided that he was going to do a trick on me. And so uh, in my routine where I eat this banana, uh, I opened it up. I took a bite of it. And then they apparently in, in they, they brought the camera in real close to my face as my face kind of chewed on the banana and my eyes kind of watered. They had shot jalapeno sauce into my banana. <laughs> Well, that's a good routine. <laughs> and then another wonderful one was one of the guys at the show drives a motorcycle. They took his motorcycle and they tied it to a rope and they pulled it to the top of the artistic tent, the back tent. And when Nikki went out to look for his his uh, 
motorcycle it wasn't there and he came in and we were standing and all of us were standing in the middle of uh, uh, the artistic right under his uh motorcycle say well what do you think what do you think happened he's i don't know where could, do i call the police literally 20 feet above was this motorcycle <laughs> hanging from the top of the tent so they i i loved being there i really did now about halfway through that run i i got a very interesting phone call which led me to my next escapade um i got a call from a casting director in new york who was looking for someone to play the role of lefou uh who in in beauty and the beast and lefou is uh, gaston's village idiot sidekick and uh i told him well i'm in this show here in las vegas till october or till november he said well if you want to come audition you know these things can be handled so if you want to come audition we'd love to see you we've heard a lot about you and we hear you're short which that's good and we hear you can sing and dance and that's good and they hear that you can clown and that's good so on one of my weeks off i went to new york and i auditioned i went into the studio and auditioned for the casting director and the vocal arranger and the choreographer uh and i don't know if, i don't think the director was there but i'm not sure he might have been anyway I could tell that I had, I had, I could tell they wanted me uh, right after I finished audition. They started said, "When can you come back for a callback?" And so I went back about two weeks later. On a, I took a red eye back to New York and I auditioned again. And after the audition, they said, "Go find an agent to negotiate for you." <laughs> and so then I, so I spent the rest of the day lining up an agent. And then I got on a plane and I flew back to, to. Uh, Las Vegas to do the show the next day. And the negotiations went on and on for about two months. And finally, they agreed on a on a nice figure. And then I was sent to the Disney studios in Burbank, because I had to audition for Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. And uh, I auditioned for them before I, I, I left. Uh, I said, I just want you to know that um, I don't know if you've ever auditioned this a shareholder, but I'm a shareholder. <laughs> <laughs> you, own, you own one share of stock. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, that night I got the call that I'd been cast and that I, you know, I sh and then they had to buy out my contract and my understudy took over and they paid me moving expenses. And from there, I went right from Las Vegas to New York for the rehearsals for Beauty and the Beast. We went to Houston and we did the tryouts. I went back to Atlanta. My wife, my Joanna and I got married, went to the Virgin Islands for our honeymoon, came home, packed up the house and moved to New York for the next seven years. And for the next three years, I was the, I was LeFou in Beauty and the Beast. I'm on the cast album and all well, that. That was an extraordinary experience too. Well, it is. And, and I'm uh, actually amazed at what you had to go through uh, once once it was clear to you that they actually wanted you but you still had to continue the process and yeah i had to get signed off by eisner and katzenberg you know <laughs> who who would have known they were that hands-on so they were um now had you i know that in that role you were comedic but you also sing mm -hmm. uh, because it is a musical the beauty and the beast so had you had you had any significant amount of singing in your career before that part well i've done it i had done a few musicals but um no i mean i'm a singer i'm a character singer i you know i play musical instruments and 
and all that stuff. So, um, no, I mean, I, I just knew I could play this role. I, I, I listened to the soundtrack from the film and I got a sense of the, the character. And, you know, it's the nice thing about being a character actor is that you don't have to have a perfect voice. Right. And that, that is really, you know, I have a good, I mean, I can sing in tune and all that, but I learned a lot about singing from a guy named David Friedman, who was the vocal arranger. And he said, you know, sometimes you can speak a line and it can be as powerful as singing. And secondly, you can back phrase and front phrase and, and so you want to make it sound like you're talking to people. That's Rex Harrison and My Fair yeah. Lady, I guess. Yeah, yeah it is. So, but, uh, it's great. So you picked it up, obviously, and you were yeah. per evidently you, you were the original cast member of that, which yeah. is quite extraordinary. Um, let me again for those just tuning in, or for those who forgot what we're doing on the air here. I'm speaking with um, a really entertaining fellow and a nice man, Kenny Raskin, uh, who's going through some of the high points of his acting career and his. Um, singing career, <laughs> his Broadway experience. We haven't got to the movies yet or things that you've done on television, which we'll get to in a moment. But I do want to ask you a question. Um, is your, was your, or and is your wife involved in any respect in um, the, the theater or you know, business that you are? What, yeah, what does I mean, she well, do? So she was an acting intern at the Alliance Theater when we met. I was doing a play called I'm Not Rappaport. Uh, I was playing, I was 39 years old and I was playing, or I was maybe a little, or a little younger, but 37 or something. And I was playing an 80 year old man. Um, so she fell in love with an old man, but she came backstage and she just said, oh, you were great. And I know some of the people on the show. And I thought she was really cute. She was wearing this vintage dress, you know, and I thought she was really, really cute. And so we, we all went out afterwards and one thing led to another and I called her for a date and, and the rest is history. But um, she was an acting intern, but then she uh, ended up being a, working for Coca-Cola. She ended, that was her day job uh, in, the, in the, she was in the commu corporate communications department. When we moved to New York, she, uh, she got introduced to uh, uh, the people that worked in the wig room at Beauty and the Beast. And they trained her to be what is called a swing. So a swing is somebody who takes the place of somebody. It's different than an understudy. An understudy is usually for a, an understudy in the, for actors is somebody who's gonna play your role and no, no other. The swing is somebody who can do a lot of different things. So Joanna was trained to be a hairstylist or a hair a wig person. And we, there were 11 wig people backstage as many people as they were in the show there were that many people backstage working so she ended up having a very nice career in new york swinging on broadway for various shows tasks that have to be done behind, in the, in behind the, the scenes got it got when it. we moved to boston uh she she would do some shows that would come here she'd go down to downtown and work in the theater but because she's in the union she got she started getting these movie gigs and uh, since we've been here, she's done about 30 films. She's, she does hair on movies. So she just, she's, tomorrow she's working on the Boston Strangler. And uh, 
Is there any hair in that movie? I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> and what else? She, I mean, she did Daddy's Home and Daddy's Home 2. She did, um, she did uh, Ted and Ted 2. She did, she's done a lot of stuff with uh, Adam Sandler. She, she wouldn't do the stars, but she's, you know, she works. Yeah, she has a nice little career where she works on movies. Well, one of the reasons I asked you about that is that I think most people that know anything about theater and acting and actors know that it's a tough job, even even and maybe particularly once you've made it the way you have made it, because you're pulled from pillar to post. There's a lot of travel involved and there's a lot of pick things up and go someplace. And uh, it's good that your wife obviously is involved in, in sort of the operational aspects of it. So she accompanies you, but I suppose there's been times where you've had to be away for long stretches and that can put stresses and strains on the relationship. Yeah. I went back to Atlanta in 2015 and did, I'm not Rappaport again with actually with the same, there were, there were two old men in the show and neither of us were old at the time, but now we're older. We did it again. We were hired to do it again. And uh, I was gone for six weeks. Uh, she came down to see the show, obviously, but most of my work, my traveling has been, uh, you know, two days at a time, three days at a time, maybe a couple of weeks at a time doing this corporate, you know, this corporate teaching that I've been doing, corporate communication teaching. So, uh, and but, you know, she knows I'm always coming home. So, yeah. Well, that that's again part of the part of the bargain, I suspect. Really but uh, so, I mean, in addition to being as successful as you've been um, in theater and music, and and we can touch on the films that you've been in, uh, keeping a marriage together is is in sometimes a, a full time job. So I like you know, Mark. I'd like to think that uh, my going away. She the reason why it's worked is she she got a break from me. <laughs> I'm not kidding. well i've yeah, i understand that too but in any event uh -huh. so um we can we can talk you moved to boston um yeah. and you moved to boston you can tell us why but i think it might have something to do with the teaching that you've been doing in that area but maybe there was another pull there to begin with well i got you know, I got tired of of show business a little bit in New York. I, I the story behind that is that I was in a a play that was we traveled. We went to Baltimore for six weeks and New Haven to Yale Rep for six weeks to get it ready for Broadway. When I came home, uh, th there were seven people in the cast, and five of us were were uh, made redundant, as they say, uh, and. Uh, we it was it was an interesting experience because all the while we were doing the show we were the producers were telling us how we were all going to broadway with this but when we got home they realized that they ne needed to find some names that could sell tickets because maybe we didn't have you know that kind of name and uh, it was really interesting because I remember now seeing certain people coming down to see the show in Baltimore and New Haven, you know, so that, and I just thought, you know what, if you had told me that you didn't know who would go to Broadway, but do you want to do this tour and we'll see when we get there, 
I, that would have been fine to me, but I felt a little bit duped and betrayed or however you want to look at. It. And I thought, I don't really want to be in the business of show like that. I, I want to, I, I want to be more in control of my career is that's how I felt about it. And at that particular time, a friend of mine who was running a corporate communications company, she was an actress and she, she uses acting skills to teach business people uh, leadership communication skills. She asked me if I'd be interested in learning how to teach this stuff. And I said, yeah. And I, so I lived for the first two years that I did it, or three years actually, I, I lived in New York. And uh, just, it was all about getting on a plane and going somewhere. Um, but our son turned two, two and a half, and we were looking at nursery school. And I don't know if you know this, but nursery school is a three day a week program in New York City. And it costs 16, at that time it cost $16,000 a year to send your kid to nursery school. That is if you could get him in. <laughs> right, so, so, so that's, that, that's more than my four years of college at a state university, I, I get it. <laughs> you get into college in New York City easier than you can get into nursery school. And we started looking around and my sister lived in this little town called Needham, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston. And um, we moved there. Now, at that point, we, we came up, we found a house, and then I had to go to Germany because I had a six-week engagement engagement in a in a variety theater there doing my park bench beats and stuff. So my darling sister handled the inspection, the closing, the painting, the this, the that. And then when I came back from Berlin, we um, we packed up the apartment and moved to Needham, and that's where we are because. The company is headquartered in Boston, this uh, communications company. And so not that I needed to be here, but um, it seemed like a good place to be. So that company is Ariel. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But let yeah. me just let me just comment on what you said, because I think it's an interesting facet. Again, the people that don't appreciate um, you know, the struggles, the, the ongoing struggles, and the fact that there are highs and lows and disappointments. Here you were an obviously accomplished performer who had, you know, was on Broadway, Cirque du Soleil, uh, recognized um, television appearances, worldwide tours, and so on and so forth. And yet, um, it's a business at the end of the day. It's a brutal business. And um, you didn't say it, and obviously not apparently the kind of person that, you know, you might take something personally, but you have a way of picking yourself up. You said, uh, as, you, as you indicated, uh, sort of enough is enough. I've done this thing. It's great. But there are other things I can do if they present themselves. And lo and behold, something unexpected presented itself. And you took the bull by the horns, if that's the right expression. And that's when you started doing the, ex the experience of teaching. Now, so I'll tell you something real quick, Mark. Sure. There were bigger, there were bigger fish in that, in that play that got let go than me. There was a woman named Mary Beth Peel who was very well known in New York as, a, as an actress. Uh, well, guess who was available? Betty Buckley, okay? Mm. Patty Lapone's brother, Robert Lapone, well-known New York actor and well-known on TV, you know? Bobby Lapone was in this thing. F. Murray Abraham is who they wanted, okay? The, they needed that. So the only two people they kept were the, the ingenue, the male and female ingenues. And the rest of us, uh, you know, 
I, what I found out actually was that they had asked some of these people to go on tour and these people said, no, nah, I don't want to go on tour, but if you come to Broadway, I'd be interested. <laughs> right. Well, again, I think this is a lesson, particularly, you know, I, as you know, I, I do a bit of acting here uh -huh. in Asheville, did some acting in Philly. And, you know, when you audition for something and you think you're great, <laughs> you don't get the part, you get disappointed. Yeah. But for all those out there listening, thinking that, oh, once you've made it, you've made it. And no, it, doesn't work that way because no, it doesn't work. At the end of the day, it's still a business, and the objective is to get people in seats and sell tickets and all that stuff. But in any event, you obviously uh, not only uh, landed on your feet, you, you did a somersault uh, and got up back on your feet. But here's the question that I want to ask you about Ariel and, and just give us a start off, and then I want to hit, touch on your musical career. Um, you know, one doesn't all, at least I don't automatically think of something that the acting community can teach to managers because business, particularly in the companies that, that have been your uh, clients, I mean, they're, they're big companies, they're fortune 500 companies, yeah. probably some smaller ones. And, you know, you tend to think of those people as, you know, stayed, um, you, you know, the, if they crack a smile, it's usually at your expense. But the question that I have for you is, what is the crossover? Why do they want people like you talking to those kind of folk? Well, you know, Kathy and her partner, Belle, who was, you know, she started this company with, they were running a small theater in Newton, Massachusetts, and they taught classes. And one of their board members, who was the CEO of a small consulting firm, took a class with them and uh when it was over he remarked to them he said you know this is this was a lot of fun i had a great time but i'm shocked i'm 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 surprised to realize that a lot of the skills that you utilize to do your job are very similar to the type of things i try to do or want to do in my job it's about okay an actor needs to communicate the story that's that they've been given to communicate and they have to get the audience involved, not only analytically, but emotionally. And a leader needs to tell their story or tell the story of the company or tell the story of the strategy, the direction in which they wanna go. And a lot of research says, the way you get people to go along with them is by connecting with their heart. In addition to their mind, people want to do what you want them to do when they feel, when they feel something about it more so than when they think something about it. And so in leadership, and what we, we mostly focus on is leaders and emerging leaders, where the job is no longer, I need you to do this, I need you to do that, but how would you go about helping me get here? Or, you know, we need to get here because this is so, how, how can you contribute? How can you contribute? So you really, it's about, it's about training the leadership of other people. And it's, so it's a, it's a uh, if you go back to acting, it's about, it's about getting people to go on the ride with you, okay? And leaders need to get their people to go on the ride with them. And so, that's, how it, that's how it happened, that's how it connected. And we tell them what we're gonna do in the workshop is first we're gonna take you outside the box. We're gonna, we're gonna go outside your comfort zone. We're gonna go do things that you go, what the hell am I doing this for? But we're going to bring it back. We're going to say, now, what in this exercise seems relevant to you? And how do you think 
You can use your voice better, your gesture better, your face better. How can you listen better? How can you, how can you use stories, personal stories? Uh, it's just a myriad of things involved. So, in so, so I get it. So it's basically yeah. you're teaching people who are inclined to be very analytical and to concentrate excessively perhaps on what it is they want to say right. and le less so about how to say it, how to engage, how to motivate. Right. But, but true leaders that are successful, just like, you know, I had somebody on the show a couple of weeks or weeks ago who was talking about how coaches of football teams, uh, yeah, it's, it's not just about knowing how to play the game. It's knowing how to motivate a group of, of, right. of men to do something. So that's, that's what true. you do. The best, best coaches, the best athletic coaches do that. You want, you want to win for them, <laughs> you know? Um, I'll share a quote with you. This I love this quote more than anything in the world. It's by a guy named Mike Lipkin. And I wish I could remember the book that I read it out of, but his name is Mike Lipkin. And it goes like this. Who you are being when you are saying what you are saying says more about what you are saying than what you are saying. Wow. And so I say, you know, I say to people, I'm, I'm here to work with you on who you're being when you're saying what you're saying, because I don't know what you should say. That's not my job. I, I, I don't know your business like you know your business. Right. So, but, but, but the talent that you have is universe, uh, is to teach them a universal thing. Well, well I'm, let me, one of, I'm one of about 50 doing this in the company. So. Okay. And, and you have a, a very impressive client roster. I think I saw Procter & Gamble, but I might not have but Coca-Cola yeah. or whatever. So you've got some true uh, corporate stars that you're you're working with well before we get uh, uh before we get out of time which we're not but mm -hmm. you are uh self-described and it was and has been described you are a multi-instrumentalist which means that you you can play a lot of instruments and you play a lot of instruments you sing mm -hmm. and you write songs yeah so i see a guitar in the background there may be a ukulele around there or something. I'm going to ask you if you could do something for us yeah. on, on air, so to speak. Yeah, I'll do the, uh, I'll do a song that, uh, again, it's on my website. Uh, I, I have just love for 30s and 40s style music. And uh, I, I wrote this tune in the 30s and 40s style. And then a friend of mine who actually is a rabbi, believe it or not, you know, great. Uh, he's a rabbi and an ethnomusicologist. Both, uh, he was the rabbi at Hillel uh, in Tufts, at Tufts. And I, we, we play on Saturday, he and I and about five other guys get together on Saturday and play. And I said, I've got this little tune, I'm going to play it for you. When it was over, he said, can I write lyrics for that? And I said, yeah. So this is, song is called Sweetheart. It's music by Kenny Raskin. And lyrics by Jeff Summit, Rabbi Jeffrey Jeff, Summit. And, and then you'll introduce us by name, at least to the other players, what they, yeah. they come from all walks of life. But right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ooh. While we were talking, it, it went out of tune. So wait one <laughs> just, second. Just from us talking, it probably went out of tune. And, and for all those who don't see this, but are listening, he's tuning by ear he's not using one of those fancy electronic gizmos which is what i use the few times i play my guitar that's just because i'm too lazy to reach back for it
took a trip out on the ocean blue, but it was not much fun there without you. Of all the things that I do, the best is you, sweetheart. I took a carriage ride through Central Park. I thought about you in the dark. great that's a Ladies, shortened version of it <laughs> ladies and gentlemen the band. <laughs> kenny raskin performing on i assume i have that in perspective that's a ukulele and not that's a ukulele not, not a small guitar okay no. so so that's uh, on a i made a record a couple years ago i made my first cd and i called it my greatest hits <laughs> <laughs> Your first CD, so, greatest hits. Okay, right. So that leads off the that leads that leads off the um, that leads it off. So yeah, I have a, a group I play with on Saturday. One is a um, a ghost writer. Okay, he's he wrote Lee Iacocca's autobiography and Magic Johnson's autobiography. He writes. They didn't write their own. You're telling me they didn't write their own. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, with him, and uh, he he go, he he does private books. He wrote. He wrote a book for Robert Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots. Yes. <clears throat> but his big claim to fame is his son is uh, was one of the producers and actors on The Office. Okay. So, and let's see, a, a, a software, a scientist, a software, a pulmonologist. Um, what else have we got there? No, no another rabbi. Two, two rabbis. Do so like to drink scotch. So accepting you, all those folks do, do something very different. They didn't know career. what I did. They didn't know what I did when I joined. Oh, you didn't tell them. They thought, well, oh, I don't, account, I think, accountant. <laughs> I think it became clear to them after a while. But no, it's a wonderful group of people. I call us the Alta Cockers, you know. I and think we that, mentioned that, yeah. The Alta we did. There's probably a few people out there. Yeah. Don't know what that means. So roughly translated, it means old farts. Basically, let's just go there. Okay, I I, I, I like to say just old old grumpy, yeah. sort of sort of interesting fellows, but you know with a crotchety uh, uh, personality. All right. Well, you're certainly not that. So in any event, so I'll tell you real quickly. But that song that I just played, obviously you can get it, you know, an Apple or whatever you want. You I, you can find it out there under my name, but. On my website, I, I did a little music video of it and because I I was just learning how to do this. All I did was take pictures and and sort of make a, a photo collage of the song with with uh, you know trying to use the line like I'm lost at sea. You know, there's a you see a you just see a a, a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. And so I was just trying to characterize the lyrics, but then in the instrumental part. I have pictures of sweethearts of all races, colors, sexes, genders, you know. <laughs> so, 
so it's, that was a it's, lot of fun to put together. So it seems obvious based upon what you had done previous to that, that you would be great at the lyrics, but you actually are writing the songs themselves. Well, I wrote, I didn't write those lyrics, but I, I, I write, yeah, I have, I have my own songs too. Yeah. So where, so where, where do you see that in terms of all the myriad of things? You're not giving up um, the comedic art, so to speak, and you're still working as a consultant and you're still doing, I guess the word is gigs, but music is, is somehow at this point in your life taken on a new meaning for you. Yeah, uh, I don't think um, I would, uh, I'm, I'm so glad I arrived at this. I mean, I, I consider myself semi-retired. I mean, I work when I want to, and I work mostly out of my house, doing most of this virtually. I'll go on the road when they need me to. And um, I also run a hospital clown troupe uh, in Boston. So again, I, I, um, I manage, I, I coach and teach them clowning. And so I have a lot of time. I mean, I have, I'm here in my office a lot and on my studio, and this is where I'm focusing now. I'm just focusing on writing music and uh, putting out another CD. This new CD is going to be less vaudevillish and much more personal. I got a song about my son. I got a song about uh, after I came out of the hospital, I have a song about, I have a song called, How Am I Supposed to Know If You Don't Tell Me? So that's a song about a, somebody who was mad at me and I didn't find out till later. So I wrote a song about that. And <laughs> I always said, when I, when I do that song publicly and my wife is there to say, this is not a song about my wife. <laughs> I understand. Well, um, obviously, uh, I won't say serendipitously, but we're in these interesting times here where you're not sure when it's, quote, safe to go outside uh, with a mask or another jab in the arm, as they say. So in a way, not that anybody sort of wishes this to continue uh, any longer than it obviously needs to be, but you're perfectly positioned now. You've got everything around you you can make you can access every anybody all over the world i mean you, you, they can't throw you up on a rope again at Cirque du Soleil. No, they can't. But, I'm not but, going up there. but but those days are probably over for you anyhow but you're situated to pursue a lot of the stuff that you've done throughout your life and then this this musical uh career i don't know if that's the correct word for it but yeah it is 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 it's now in it's helping to enrich you and enrich those uh, those folks that you meet with and those folks you play with so well it's a collaborate you know every about everything i'm doing is a collaboration because i don't the songs are not just me on the guitar or me on the ukulele i've got one song with clarinet and trombone in it um a lot of interesting collaborations another collaboration i did uh, during the pandemic was a friend of mine who's a, again a wonderful clown and Oddly enough, a corporate trainer too, uh, out on the West Coast. His name is Jeff Raz, and Jeff wrote uh, lyrics to the tune of John Henry, but he called it Joan Henry, and it was about the pandemic and about the nurses and the, the her her heroism of the nurses. And he sent it to me. And he said, "Can you can you can you play it and sing it?" And so. I did, and I made a video again with a photo collage of that. So you, you know, you, Mark, you should look at it. It's really interesting. It's just 
it's uh yeah he talked talks about the nurses and he talks about going to the people going to the white house and all this stuff and it's that was a lot of fun i just i like you know i like i'm, I'm really enjoying being cooped up <laughs> well you're enjoying the peace of being able to to focus and focus on your own time and exactly in your own way is what you're saying exactly. um well, we just have a little bit of time. Let's see if yeah. there's anything else that you want to talk more about. You've got another album, I think, in the works you had mentioned. Yeah. I guess we still call them albums these days. I yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I I um. I I don't know if I'll if I'll press this one. You know, people aren't pressing CDs. My son, who's also a brilliant musician, um, uh, wants me to make a vinyl copy. So I might do that. Um, I just, I don't know, you know, I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to press these things. And then I, I pressed 300 and I still have probably a, a 150 left of the last one. And I, you know, I sold 60 or 70 of them, but I'm not in this for the money. <laughs> this, this part of my career, I'm not into for the money. <laughs> yes. So um, can I ask you if your son is funny? as well as being a musician have you handed off he's any humorous. of those genes to him he's humorous he, he, he never he didn't get into the clown thing he got into the music thing i always say that my he got my he got his character from my wife mm -hmm. the sense of decency of manners of empathy and all that and he got music from me okay and well, uh, and he I'm, really i'm gonna have to disagree with you because <laughs> i i know you enough he all got right. he got a lot he got a lot yeah, of those he things got, from me he too did, but i have to say my wife was much more attentive to to uh teaching him the long-term uh lessons of life well let me sort of close up here to say uh, again you are a, a marvelous human being um I, I wished that we had been greater in touch over the span of time but i'm so happy to have uh, caught up with you again and as i said in the beginning i knew and my wife and I both knew that you were going to be tremendously successful. And to use another Yiddish expression, you are a true mensch as oh, well as being you. a very talented person. So I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, you gave the website. Want to hit it one more time for the website, please? Yeah, www.kennyraskin.com. Uh, YouTube, Kenny Raskin. I have a YouTube, YouTube channel. I have music videos and music and just play music on on the uh website uh you're all over the place <laughs> uh, heartsandnoses.org is the hospital clown troop that that i lead uh well, that's, I wanna, the, that's all I wanna, the dots i have okay well i want that's <laughs> enough done <laughs> yeah Go ahead, one, Mark, one more. You, i told you before when we first talked that I have a real love of Asheville, and you, it, it should not surprise you that you might see me there one day. I hope so. Yeah. Br bring your ukulele. I All will. right. <laughs> Thanks, Take care. Kenny. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. You bet.